This podcast is produced by Secure World Foundation, an endowed private operating foundation that promotes cooperative solutions for space sustainability and the peaceful uses of outer space. The podcast is released under a Creative Commons attribution non-commercial license. For more information, please visit swfound.org. My name is Bill Mackey, and I'm uh, the uh, Counselor of Space Affairs here at the Canadian Embassy, and uh, I want to welcome you to this event today. Um, and this uh, Canada's 50th year of space utilization, it is a pleasure to be here to mark the launch of the 2012 edition of the Space Security Index. And to this, and to introduce the expert panel and moderator of this event today, um, uh, a little later on, um, Canada have been very pleased to support the Space Security Index in partnership with Project Plowshares, the Simons Foundation, and the Secure World Foundation. And it is a very important period of time for space security. This executive summary that you all have handed out at the start of this session um, offers the trends of, this, of space situational awareness, orbital debris, civil, com civil commercial defense use of space, and policies and codes. Um, is a significant benefit as we track the progression of, towards the full global utilization of space demand. Um, uh, on the last year's book, um, CSA um, representative, who happens to be here today, Jean-Marc Jean Chouinard, is quoted as saying that the Space Security Index keeps present on our minds the vulnerability of space and space assets and the need to promote space security. The Space Security Index provides a concrete means measure how much progress we've made from year to year. I think this is very valuable. Um, in the civil and commercial arena, recently in this year, this year Canada committed to continuous support to the International Space Station to the year 2020. And we have helped SpaceX Dragon Capsule um, complete its dual demonstration to, the, to and from the ISS, and, and which marks a huge transition into the commercial space Congratulations, SpaceX. On the defense and security front, Canada has long advocated transparency and confidence building measures among spacefaring nations as a key step towards a secure space environment and to mitigate the risks such as those posed by space debris. To this end, Canada is proud to have recently signed an MOU with the United States on space situational awareness and will be launching its first DND satellite, SAFIRE, later on this year. We are therefore welcome and, are, are, and will support the efforts led by the United States to share information regarding the existing hazards, which serves to enhance the awareness of all nations operating in the space domain. We also welcome global efforts to develop international norms for the responsible use of outer space, such as the International Code of Conduct and, and uh, efforts towards the development of transparency and confidence building measures and best practice guidelines. As a result, uh, or sorry, as this annual report, sorry, as the only annual report that systematically tracks commercial, military, and policy-related developments that may be may have impact on the security and sustainability of outer space, this space situational awareness where index is a unique and invaluable resource. So I have the honor today to introduce Victoria Sampson, who will then introduce the panel members. Uh, Victoria Sampson is, is a head of Washington Office um, Director of the Secure World Foundation, and over to you, Victoria. 
Thank you very much. everyone. Uh, thank you for braving the blaze of the sun to come out today. We've been told they will keep an eye on our ice water, so please feel free to go back and refresh yourself as needed. As Bill said, my name is Victoria Sampson. I'm the Washington Office Director of the Secure World Foundation. Um, many of you know my organization, but just in case you haven't, our short spiel about what we are and what we like to focus on. We're an endowed private operating foundation that promotes cooperative solutions for space sustainability. Our vision is a secure, sustainable, and peaceful use of outer space will contribute to global stability on Earth. To accomplish that, we work with governments, industry, international organizations, and civil society to develop and promote ideas and actions for international collaboration that achieve a secure, sustainable, and peaceful uses of outer space. We use a global and a long-term lens to examine proposed solutions for the governance of outer space. Our core concepts include to promote orbital debris mitigation and remediation, encourage international cooperation, expand the conversation to include emerging space powers, and finally use space to shore up human and environmental security. As supporters of the Space Security Index, we believe that this document does much to help build a more secure, sustainable, and reliable space domain for all to continue to enjoy over the long term. So with that, I'm not going to go too much into the FSI because you'll be hearing plenty about it over the next hour or two. We're going to start off with Cesar Dautamil, from Project Class Shares will be doing a brief introduction on the SSI. Um, he's the one that shepherds it through its process, so he's intimately aware of what's in it and can speak knowledgeably about it. And then we have a fantastic panel I'm very excited about. We'll be looking at various aspects of issues that affect space sustainability and security over the long term. First will be Krista Christensen from the Tory Group who will be looking at civil commercial aspects of space. And then we have Audrey Schaefer from OSD Policy Space who will be looking at the security aspects. And then finally, in his D.C. premier appearance, will be Michael Lissner, who will be discussing the space uh, legal policy aspects. So with that, um, we're going to have all the speakers go, and then I'll ask if you can hold questions until everyone's done, and then we'll have a Q&A at that point. So with that, Peter. Thank you, Victoria. It's a pleasure and a privilege for me to be here. At the outset, I, I would like to point out that although I'm the person doing the presentation, the Space Security Index is a collaborative effort, and there's a lot of time and expertise devoted by, by a wide range of people that are committed to this project. Uh, from the researchers that are based at the Space Policy Institute here in Washington, D.C., at George Washington University, and also at the Institute for uh, at the Institute for Air and Space Law at McGill University and also at Secure World Foundation to the governance group and the supporting partners. So this is truly a collaborative effort and everybody, we, we, we speak with the same voice when we say that we really, we really uh, afford a great deal of importance to the importance of the, to, to space security and the sustainability of outer space. Uh, before I begin, I would also like to thank the co-sponsors of this event, the Canadian government, which is a longtime supporter of the project, and Secure World Foundation. I mean, uh, Victoria briefly, I mean, described what they do, but I think everybody, everyone in this room, and everybody actually internationally who follows space policy knows that Secure World Foundation is doing a terrific job of, of, of creating the uh, necessary spaces to, to have dialogues and discussions and frank discussions on, the, on this most important issue of space security. Uh, the primary outcome 
So the primary outcome of the Space Security Index project is an annual report on space security, of which the 2012 edition of the Space Security Index is the ninth report, the ninth, the ninth annual volume. We have endeavored to present the main findings of this report at forums such as this one at the United Nations Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space, at diplomatic missions in other countries, international conferences, at the General Assembly First Committee, mainly because we believe that this sort of events, in which we have other experts, and encourage, uh, encourage frank discussions that, that can lead to the sort of collaborative and multilateral approach that is needed to address the very complex challenges facing the outer space domain. In this sense, the primary goal of the Space Security Index is to improve transparency on outer space activities and to provide a common, comprehensive knowledge base to support the development of national and international policies that contribute to the security and sustainability of outer space. Although the report is fact-based, nonpartisan, and policy-neutral, we always emphasize that we all of our work originates from a foundational definition that we have adopted, and we believe embodies the spirit of the 1967 Outer Space Treaty, that space should be used responsibly by all nations, and it's, it should, it's uh, the ability to, to benefit from, from space should continue throughout uh, future generations. So the definition that we have adopted is of space security is the secure and sustainable access to and use of space and freedom from space-based threats. The primary consideration in this definition is not the interest of particular national or commercial entities, but the security and sustainability of outer space as an environment that can be used safely and responsibly by all. This broad definition encompasses the security of, of the unique outer space environment, which includes the physical and operational integrity of man-made assets in space, as well as security on Earth from possible threats originating in outer space. While we recognize that there are different perspectives on what space security entails, the Space Security Index has identified eight concrete areas, each covered in a different chapter, under which to identify and assess specific developments that may have an impact on the security of outer space. In this context, issues such as the threat posed by space debris, the priorities of national civil space programs, the growing importance of the commercial space industry, efforts to develop a robust normative regime for outer space activities, and concerns about the militarization and potential weaponization of space are critical. Today we are fortunate to have experts on most of these areas that I have mentioned that are, that are going to go into a little bit more depth while I give a broad overview of the areas that we covered and the main developments that we track in the past year, specifically from January to December 2011. Although each major issue is covered in a different chapter, the Space Security Index report recognizes that the boundaries that separate civil, military, and commercial space assets are dissolving, creating mutual vulnerabilities and interdependence. So, 
The areas covered in the report, which I have just mentioned, the eight chapters, can be broadly grouped into four general themes. The physical space environment, the normative regulatory framework for, for outer space activities, the growing number and diversity of actors in space, and space-based military applications. With regard to the physical space environment, without a doubt, the most salient challenge to the security and sustainability of outer space is the threat posed by space debris to spacecraft of all nations. And it is hard to overstate this fact. There is wide concern and legitimate concern, I might add, about the threat posed by space debris to all nations, indiscriminate. Even to the nation that may have created space debris, its space assets are vulnerable to the, to the hazardous uh, effects of, uh, of space debris. The total amount of human-created space debris in orbit continues to grow and is concentrated in high-value orbits where space assets are primarily located. By the end of 2011, the U.S. Space Surveillance Network cataloged 17,147 objects larger than 10 centimeters out of more than 300,000 pieces of debris to be currently in space. In recent years, awareness of the space debris problem has grown considerably, in part because various spacecraft has, have been hit by pieces of debris, intentional debris-generating events have occurred, and satellites have collided with one another. As a result, efforts to mitigate the production of new debris through compliance with national and international guidelines have become highly important. The future development and deployment of technology to remove debris promises to increase the sustainability of our space. Likewise, the development of space situational awareness capabilities to track space debris provides significant space security advantages when used to avoid collisions. Although greater international cooperation to enhance the predictability of space operations will advance space security, the sensitive nature of some information and the small number of leading space actors with the advanced tools for surveillance have traditionally kept significant data on space activities shrouded in secrecy. But recent developments covered in this report suggest that there is a greater willingness to share space situational awareness data through international partnerships. In this, in this sense, there is a, uh, an acknowledgement, a wide acknowledgement, that the effectiveness of space situational awareness to avoid collisions is greatly enhanced insofar as data is shared with international partners. No one state has the, the, the even the most advanced states, lack the, the sufficient space situational awareness capabilities to avoid collisions. So the data, uh, efforts to share such data is welcome and it's, it's really going to contribute to greater, to greater safety and stability in our space operations. So this is a sample of the type of developments related to this area that, that are covered in this report. There are others and each of them is, is, is uh, described in great detail. For example, catalog space debris population increased by 7.8% in 2011 alone. This despite the relatively few no, low number of, of, of uh, orbital breakups. Orbital debris continues to have a growing impact on operational spacecraft. The United States continues to expand its uh, space situational awareness sharing program and the international effort to track and reestablish contact with the Ro uh, Russian Phobos Grand spacecraft. Just to highlight a couple of these uh, developments, uh, and. Uh, in terms of the impact that space debris is having on operational spacecraft, 
the International Space Station, which is arguably the greatest and most advanced engineering project in the, in the history of mankind, had just in one month, actually in a period of five days in April 2011, had to uh, conduct avoidance maneuvers to, uh, to avoid space debris. For example, on, on April 1st of 2011, it had to conduct, uh, uh, flight controllers had to conduct a, a, a repositioning of the International Space Station because a piece of space debris from the 2009 collision between Cosmos 2251 and Uranium-33 satellite collisions was going to hit it. Just four days later, on April 5th, the crew of the International Space Station had to take shelter in a Soyuz spacecraft because a piece of debris from the 2007 uh, anti-satellite test conducted by China was going to pass within 4.5 kilometers of the International Space Station, posing a threat not only to the physical infrastructure of the, of the International Space Station, but also to the, to the, to the, to the crew of the, of the International Space Station. So it's, 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 not a, it's not a matter of exaggerating the threat. It's a real, clear, and pressing threat to all space assets and to human presence in space. Uh, likewise, the Canadian Space Agency had to, had to conduct several maneuvers uh, to reposition its radar sat satellites. It received throughout the year at least 14 close approach alerts. And, um, uh, and five of which prompted uh, avoidance maneuvers to avoid to to avoid collisions with pieces of debris. So it's it's I can't again overstate how how pressing a problem this is. Um, so the so the, yeah that, that's the highlight of the of the main sort of some of the developments covered in, the, on, in that area. The second theme that we cover is lost policies and doctrines. That are, in other words, the efforts, the multilateral efforts to, to, to produce a robust normative regime for our space activities. The Space Security Index project partners see the current normative regime to regulate space activities as being insufficient. It doesn't mean that we see the Outer Space Treaty as, as being inherently bad or wrong or flawed. It's a great mechanism but it's more than 40 years old, and it hasn't been updated to reflect the, the, the new technologies and the new realities of space activities. So we see uh, several forums and several efforts I mean, to, to, to move this forward and to update and, and improve on the, on the regulatory regime for, for space activities. So we see different approaches, mainly on two levels. First, whether norms of behavior for outer space activities should be primarily advanced at the national level or whether this should be done multilaterally. Secondly, whether any such norms, especially the latter, should be legally binding or not. Certainly, the different approaches need not be mutually exclusive. As such, national legislation and multilateral efforts can and do coexist and may be mutually reinforcing. Likewise, a non-binding non -binding rules of the road approach could potentially complement or pave the way to legally binding norms. By the end of 2011, international space actors remained unable to reach consensus on the exact nature of a space security regime, despite having specific alternatives on the table for their consideration either as legally binding treaties, such as the Sino-Russian proposed ban on space weapons, also known as the PPWT, or politi 
politically binding or non-legally binding norms of behavior, such as the uh, European Union's proposed International Code of Conduct for Outer Space Activities. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. Although the first two are often the ones that are most often cited, I always like to remind people there's a third proposal, and in a classic Canadian fashion, in 2009, Canada proposed a set of pledges that sort of take elements from each of the uh, each of the uh, of the other two proposals. I mean, it is non-binding. These would be non-binding as the Code of Conduct for Outer Space Activities, but they would nonetheless address issues related to weaponization of space, like the PPWT. So Canada has proposed pledges to ban the placement of weapons in space, to prohibit the test or use of weapons on satellites so as to damage or destroy them, and to prohibit the use of satellites themselves as weapons. So it's a, it's a good reminder, a reminder that it may be worthwhile to revisit the, the Canadian proposal as it bridges some of the some of the some of the extremes or some of the, the other the other the other alternatives that are out there. Um, some key developments that are that are covered in our in the 2012 edition of the report are that the U.S. National Security Space Strategy was released, that the Conference on Disarmament could not agree on a program of work during 2011 the terms of reference for the COPIUS Working Group on the Long-Term Sustainability of Outer Space uh, Activities was agreed. The International Code of Conduct for Outer Space Activities proposed by the European Union continues to receive mixed support. Now, the United States confirmed its engagement with the group of governmental experts for transparency and confidence-building measures in space. These are all highly consequential developments, especially related to, to this area, to the, uh, to the development of our regulatory framework uh, for our space activities. Very briefly, uh, a few words about some of them. The National Security Space Strategy was released. This followed uh, uh, from the 2010 U.S. National Space Policy, which, which has the same, uh, the same spirit and some of the same themes. It outlines broadly three general objectives, and, and Audrey may, may, may explain this in, in greater depth, but it's, uh, it, its objectives are to maintain and enhance the strategic advantages that the United States derives from space, to strengthen the safety, stability, and security of space activities, and to energize the United States industrial base. So it is, it is a document that is very uh, consistent with the prior, uh, from the document in the year before, the National Space Policy. And it has, uh, it has already, I mean, you can already see that the focus, for example, that it has played, that it placed on international co cooperation has started to materialize. And there have been data sharing agreements with countries like Australia in 2010 and France in 2011. So there is really that, that, that a lot of people see it as a shift from the 2006 National Space Policy under, under the Bush administration. The Conference on Disarmament, I mean, this is old news, but nonetheless continues to be disappointing. I mean, it's, it's, it's almost a decade and a half since, since the CD uh, actually had a program of work. And uh, as most of you may know, I mean, the Paris or the prevention of an arms race in outer space is one of four core issues that the that the that the CD is supposed to address. However, in the in the absence of a program of work, there is there are no substantive negotiations on any of the issues. The other three are incidentally related to nuclear disarmament. 
the terms of reference for copy for the working group on the long-term sustainability of outer space is widely seen as a very positive initiative at Copios in Vienna. It, this is a, this was established under the scientific and technical subcommittee of the Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space, and it has um, working groups on space weather, on space debris, on sustainable space activities, etc. And it will produce a set of guidelines that are may or may not be implemented on a voluntary basis by, by several space actors. The International Code of Conduct for Outer Space Activity, uh, this had, there has been a lot of talk uh, surrounding this initiative. It was initially framed or understood by some to be a, to be a, a, a proposal of the European Union, but as of late it has been reframed as an international code of conduct, and negotiations are ongoing. And are to uh, in October in New York uh, there 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 is going to be a, a multilateral negotiations on the content of, of uh, and the process uh, leading to a to a code of conduct for international space activities. The position of the United States on this, uh, as it has seen by many, to be crucial. There were there was a bit of misunderstanding at some point. Some media was reported in in January of this year uh, actually that. Uh, the U.S. would not support the code as it stood, but then uh, Secretary of State Clinton clarified the U.S. position and said that the U.S. would partner with the European Union and other international partners to produce an international code of conduct for outer space activities. And it remains to be seen how much of the original text that was proposed by the European Union will be, will be kept and how much of it will be amended. And the GGE has uh, generated a fair degree of optimism about the amount of servers and space actors. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it was initially proposed by Russia uh, at the General Assembly, and uh, although the it was adopted, uh, the, although the United States initially did not support it, in part because there were references to the PPWT, which the, which the U.S. wasn't fully support or was not supportive of. Later in, in November of last year, Frank Rose uh, said that they would, in fact, participate and be, and be actively engaged with the GGE on our, on, on our space activities. With regard to the, to the number and diversity of space actors, the Space Security Index report confirms that the number uh, of, of such actors has continued to grow. By the end of 2011, at least nine states had independent launch capabilities, and indigenous space programs have been developed, developed in countries as diverse as Iran, Brazil, or South Africa. In addition to state actors, the number of NGOs, multilateral organizations, academic institutions, and commercial corporations with a stake in space activities has steadily grown in recent years. As barriers to entry decrease, the rate at which new spacefaring nations emerge will continue to grow. And while it is desirable to expand the pool of stakeholders with a vested interest in the sustainable use of space, the limited nature of, sp of some space resources pose a governance challenges to ensure equitable access for newcomers so that their ability to enjoy the benefits of space is not contingent on the date when they acquire the wherewithal to access this domain. International cooperation throughout 2011 remained a key aspect of both civil space programs and global utilities, affecting space security in a positive manner. Collaborative endeavors in civil space programs assist in the transfer of expertise and technology for the access to space by emerging space actors. 
international cooperation can also help nations undertake vast collaborative projects in space, such as the International Space Station, whose complex technical challenges and prohibitive, co prohibitive costs are difficult for any one actor to assume in isolation. Likewise, the role that the commercial sector continued to play in 2011 in the provision of lunch, communications, imagery, manufacturing services, and its symbiotic relationship with governments, civils, and military programs made this sector an important determinant of space security. A healthy space industry can lead to decreasing costs for space access and use, and may increase the accessibility of space technology for a wider range of space actors. This can have a positive impact on, the, on space security by increasing the number of actors that can access and use space or space-based applications, thereby creating a wider pool of, of stakeholders in this domain. This is a sample of the type of developments related to this area that we covered in this report. Light Square Telecommunications Plan uh, interferes with DPS signals in the U.S. This was widely covered by the media. Satellite navigation systems around the, uh, the globe continue to, uh, to evolve. Uh, GPS, uh, the Russian GLONASS, Galileo in Europe, uh, etc. Uh, Beidou in China. Increasing number of cooperation agreements on space activities. This is becoming the norm, again, because of prohibitive costs, because uh, countries that in the past could not even fathom of, of having space assets are now are not doing it through cooperation agreements with other countries, uh, countries like Bolivia in partnership with China. I mean, are, are not accessing this, this domain with credits and, and, and technical expertise, etc. Despite predictions of downturn, the satellite industry is, is positioned for continued growth. There is, uh, there was, uh, in our previous report, we, we cited some concerns about uh, a downturn, uh, a global downturn, which is which uh, which was related to the downturn in the global economy. However, uh, the satellite industry seems positioned for for continued growth over the next decade. More than a hundred, more than a thousand satellites are expected uh, to be produced between two, two, 2011 and 2021, which will generate close to. It's predicted to generate close to 200 billion dollars in revenue. Uh, and the Space Data Association reaches full operational capability. This is an association of various uh, satellite operators that are seeking to harmonize the information they have and uh, in, 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 in a way try to come up with a, with a common language to share information and, and which can lead again to, to collision avoidance and, and better, better coordination of their operations. In terms of uh, space-based military applications, Space technology with military or dual-use applications continued to grow in 2011. By the end of the year, there were more than 165 dedicated military satellites providing key reconnaissance, surveillance, and intelligence information. Of these, approximately half belong to the United States and about a quarter to Russia, the countries that continue, and have tradition, continue to lead and have traditionally led this field. That said, uh, other countries are affording increasing importance to the benefits and strategic advantages of space-based military applications, whether these are exclusively military or dual-use in nature. The SSI recognizes that the military space sector has been an important driver behind the advancement of capabilities to access and use space. It has played a key role in bringing down the cost of space access, and many of today's common space applications 
such as satellite-based navigation, were first developed for military use. Space systems have augmented the military capabilities of several states by enhancing battlefield awareness, including precise navigation and targeting support, early warning of missile launch, real-time communications, and other, and other applications. Furthermore, remote, remote sensing satellites have served as a national technical means of verification for international non-proliferation, arms control, and disarmament regimes. The Space Security Index notes, as we did last year and the, and the year before, as we have always done, that there have been no space-based space weapons to report in our publications to date. And this is a threshold that has not been crossed by any states. And this is, by any, uh, <clears throat> by any perspective, it's a positive development, that there have been no uh, SBS downloads uh, yet. Yes. In this context, it is also important to highlight that offensive and defensive space capabilities are not only related to systems that are physically in orbit, but they also include uh, uh, ground stations and data communications links. And we are, we're starting to see uh, increased importance given uh, and atten increased attention being given to the, to the communications, to the cyber domain. And, the, and, and, and this is uh, perhaps epitomized by the creation of the U.S. Cyber Command, which, which really gives a lot of importance to the cyber network related to space uh, assets. These are some of the developments related to the uh, last theme that we covered in the report. So Canada joined the wideband global uh, SATCOM project. Chile's first uh, military intelligence satellite was launched. Radars uh, block 10 near uh, initial operational capability. There are programs underway to mitigate risk of cyber attack. And jamming incidents and capabilities continue to proliferate. Just a very quick word about the last one, jamming incidents. This is a, this is a pressing concern. And, and the, they have uh, increased, and there is a relative ease with which they are carried out. Uh, stations like uh, Voice of America, uh, Radio Netherlands, Deutsche Welle, uh, BBC have been targets of jamming incidents in Iran, and other stations have been targeting Ethiopia, in Bahrain, in Eritrea, in, in several countries. And this is a this is a very common concern. And the International Telecommunications Union has has a tough uh, nut to crack, so to speak, because this is a problem that has not gone away, and quite the contrary, it has increased, but it is not always straightforward to pinpoint who is behind this. I mean, even if you know which country the jamming is coming from, it's, 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 it's uh, uh, the question of, attribute, of precise attribution is, is a complex one. So, so the ITU, which is not, not normally the, the the organization tasked with addressing such such uh, incidents uh, has a complex uh, issue on their hands. So these are again uh, the type of developments that we cover in, in the report. Uh, we I would like to acknowledge the organizations that are that are the project partners of the Space Security Index. Again, the Kerbal Foundation, the Simons Foundation, Project Plowshares, the Institute of Air and Space Law at McGill University, and Foreign Affairs Canada. We will continue to track such developments in the years to come and, again, hope that such discussions serve to, to come up with collaborative and creative solutions to the challenges facing the space domain. Thank you very much.
Wesley, you're up. Great. Christensen from the Tory Group, and um, I'm going to talk about the commercial and civil space events of the last 12 months. So 15 minutes is plenty of time. We're going to cover them all. Uh, I'm going to bring a little bit of a different perspective to augment and enhance uh, the one that Cesar brought. The Space Security Index, I think, looked at civil and commercial space through the lens of what are the most important civil and commercial space events for uh, uh, space security. I'm going to talk about Separately, what are the most important commercial and civil uh, space events of the year? And then touch a little bit on what that means for uh, uh, space security. So we're going to go through the last 12 months, and I, I did check with Victoria, so I'm going to do June to July, uh, uh, so, so we have a little bit more of a, a recent uh, frame. And I'm, I'm going to do this at least five or six times. I'm going to nod at the imaginary person who's changing my slides and then remember I'm doing it. <laughs> so, uh, on... Uh, Thursday, July uh, 21st, uh, 2011, at 5.57 a.m., uh, the very last space shuttle of the American Space Shuttle Program touched down. It was uh, uh, Atlantis. It was a, a, a right before dawn landing, about six minutes before the orbiter uh, 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 landed. Uh, the space station visibly went over the landing site, and everyone in the audience kind of quietly watched it uh, move overhead. It was a very dramatic and moving moment. Uh, it got a, a huge amount of media, press, and play, uh, and it really did represent the beginning of or the. the, the uh, it was emblematic of an ongoing change in how big space programs do big space for human spaceflight. So that was about a year ago. We, sh we saw the end of the uh, space shuttle program. And uh, uh, about a little less than a year later, we saw China uh, achieve the first docking of uh, uh, the uh, Shenzhou. I, I always want to call it a capsule. I guess they, they, it's more accurately a, a, a module system. Uh, uh, with the Tiangong uh, space station and a, a crew of three. Uh, and that has been uh, portrayed in the media and, and treated in a way that uh, puts China in the same position as the United States and the Soviet Union, and, and the Soviet Union and now Russia, uh, which, by the way, launched, has in the last year launched 15 people to the space station. When was the last time you recall seeing a news story saying, Soyuz launches a crew of three? It, it happens in the background. It's very quiet. Uh, obviously, China's participation and engagement in this arena is transformative at some level. Uh, it is only the third nation to ever launch humans into space. Uh, but it is interesting, I think, that uh, the way that China's position is portrayed is as if, almost. Uh, it now, as a nation, has the same pedigree and the same expertise and the same breadth of space capabilities as the United States and as Russia. Uh, whereas uh, this achievement, while uh, uh, profound, uh, needs to be viewed in context and uh, rarely is in, in how it's presented and, and uh, how the story is told. Uh, the space station is maybe, when, complete, when it's completed in 2020, will be about a tenth, a little more than a tenth of the size, the size of the uh, International Space Station, maybe half the size of the Soviet Mir. 
and uh, obviously uh, uh, much smaller. So that's a kind of part of the way that big nations do big space and human space like that, that, that picture has changed over the last year. Uh, another critical, and of course, uh, the US not launching people into space and purchasing those seats uh, from uh, uh, on Russian Soyuz launches. And then uh, uh, a little bit uh, uh, before the, the Chinese docking, we saw the SpaceX docking with uh, the International Space Station. And that was extremely important from a couple of perspectives. The perspective that has been most uh, uh, highly publicized is that this was the first commercial spacecraft to dock with the, the space station. Uh, and from that point of view, it absolutely represents a change in how NASA operates, a change in how the United States operates. Uh, to my mind, the most important, the big news story of uh, the space station, SpaceX's docking with the space station and SpaceX's program generally is that for roughly what it cost us to do that last Atlantis launch, SpaceX produced Falcon 1, launched it a few times, Falcon 9, launched that three times, the Dragon capsule, launched that a couple of times, about $1.2 billion total money influx into the company from various sources. That is a profound change in how we as a nation operate and how we uh, uh, achieve our space objectives. Those are just orders of magnitude different in terms of the cost and what is achieved for the cost. And again, uh, I'm not saying this to say that uh, this is the one and only solution. I'm not saying this to suggest that there are not challenges and issues associated with relying on a commercial firm, not having centralized control, uh, looking at a new launch system. Three successes is a terrific uh, uh, achievement for a startup launch system. It does not mean that that system is mature, that that system is without risk, and that that system can achieve all its goals. I'm not saying that at all. I am saying $1.2 billion, that is an extraordinary news story. So, so those are sort of the, the three uh, uh, emblematic incidents, I think, of how uh, big space programs do big space, and what does that mean for um, uh, space security? I think that the elevation of uh, China uh, uh, to uh, being perceived as a, a, a player, and in some ways being perceived as an equal player in that arena, is an important So the next kind of thread I want to touch on is uh, one that Cesar touched on uh, as well, and that is defense and uh, national security, but in particular, defense and national security use of uh, commercial uh, space assets. Uh, uh, you, you all are aware that the def US Defense Department buys quite a substantial amount of the satellite capacity that it uses from commercial satellite providers, uh, US and non-US providers. Uh, much of that demand is increasingly driven by uh, UAVs, the Predator, the Global Hawk, um, uh, use commercial bandwidth. There also this year was a very interesting development where a military payload, the commercially hosted infrared payload, DOD payload was hosted uh, uh, on an SES, on SES-2, a commercial satellite, and launched, as it happens, on a French commercial rocket. Uh, uh, that was a, quite an extraordinary change in the way that uh, uh, DOD activities are conducted, and there were many, many things that had to happen in order to enable that, but it was a successful and, in, in fact, a very beautiful uh, uh, launch. And you can see that is chirped there in the middle, uh, and that's actually uh, where it sits on SES-2. That uh, launch also, on a massive Ariane 5, happens to be a dual uh, manifested launches with launch with uh, an Arabsat. 
subway. So uh, that certainly represents the use of the commercial environment by the Department of Defense in the U.S. Uh, as a response to more constrained budgets and as a response to more widely available commercial assets. And I think that we will continue to see trends in that direction. But before we sort of overemphasize uh, over the impact of declining budgets on the DOD and declining budgets on the US uh, military and uh, intelligence community, I just want to point a quick note to what has been called the study hubbles. So this was a bit of a surprise event uh, that happened in June. Um, the uh, uh, NRO donated to NASA two uh, essentially mirror assemblies, almost uh, telescopes uh, that could be adapted for, uh, NASA believes they can be adapted for um, astronomy uh, to look for dark energy, that will save NASA, NASA roughly estimates $250 million uh, in, in developing them on their own, and that's not speaking to what they actually cost to be developed. So, two space telescopes in mothballs at NRO available for donation. I think that that is really important in the context of understanding just how big those budgets are and just how significant a player uh, the defense and intelligence uh, complex is in space. If you take the uh, published DOD budget and estimates of intelligence budgets uh, in the U.S., space budgets in the U.S., that number is larger than all other space agencies combined, including NASA. Everybody else in the world, every dollar they spend, spend less than those two entities. So again, putting in perspective where commercial and civil activity uh, fall, and uh, I very much agree with the point that Cesar made that there's been a, 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 a continuing rise in growth in commercial uh, space activity and commercial space capability, uh, that that has the potential to be transformative, uh, particularly commercial satellite revenues are continuing on the upturn, and that, that continued growth in the satellite industry is largely driven by uh, direct-to-home television. Uh, in uh, emerging markets around the world. So, but uh, putting it in context. The final thing that I want to talk about, so we've had big space, we've had a, a DOD and military use of commercial space. The final thing I wanted to touch on in the, the final couple of uh, events, and they're, they're, they're sort of a cheat in terms of events, so more thematic activities, is what I'm going to call uh, unglamorously small space. And I think small space may be the most important uh, frame for understanding and thinking about how commercial and civil space activities affect uh, space security. So one thread of small space is the emergence or continued uh, growth of micro and nanosatellite activities. Uh, you can now buy a CubeSat kit. Uh, the form factor is 10 centimeters by 10 centimeters by 10 centimeters, weighs about a kilogram. Uh, significant growth in university activity there, significant investment uh, in involvement by government agencies. There's been an increased number of uh, very small satellites. We've uh, looked at some projections and analysis that say in the next 10 years you might see 100 or more satellites just in the range of under 15 kilograms. And there are launch vehicles and launch capabilities focused on those. The, uh, uh, Vega, launch, the Vega launcher uh, uh, that is now uh, uh, launching from French Guiana uh, by Arian space is targeting, among other things, uh, uh, groups of very small satellites. Uh, that, one of the major consequences of that, Cesar touched on this idea with agreements, nations that previously have not had space programs or space activities can have access in a different way. 
Moreover, individuals can become involved in space development in a way that they historically have not been. Small sats, microsats, uh, nanosats, cube sats enable garage inventors for space. We haven't had so many of those. <coughs> and then finally, uh, I want to talk about the emergence of the small launch vehicles that uh, uh, potentially go with or relate to small satellites, and that is suborbital reusable vehicles. And this is a little bit of a flip photo to show. This is Sir Richard Branson in a, 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 I'm sure, a copyright infringing use of commercial image for Virgin uh, Galactic, uh, which is actually selling a cell phone uh, service with a co-branding of the Virgin Galactic vehicle. And why do I think this is important? Why is this worth mentioning? There are multiple vehicles, uh, suborbital reusable vehicles being developed. Uh, there's real money behind them. They're, they're doing tests and bending metal. Uh, we just completed a study. There's real demand for their services at the price that they're, prices that they're offering. Uh, these are vehicles that can carry people to the threshold of space, four or five minutes of weightlessness, uh, or do research in that, in that regime, at, at a price that's not 50 million or 25 million or 1 million, but 100 to $200,000 per person is the price at which these companies are, are selling tickets. So that is potentially uh, transformative in the following way. The demand for suborbital reusable vehicles comes from individuals. The vast majority of demand for these services is going to come from uh, uh, what I'm not, uh, what, what it's no longer fashionable to call space tourists, leisure travelers in space. Uh, and that means that government agencies can get access uh, to capability that's essentially been subsidized and supported by the private sector. And so that is uh, potentially transformative. And I think that the fact that the way we are seeing the development of these vehicles is through brand, commercial brand development, a la uh, images of Sir Richard. Uh, they are uh, commercials for, uh, uh, there's a crossover commercial, I think, with Nike that uh, uh, Virgin Galactic has done as well, uh, uh, demonstrates that this is a, a very different approach to developing and growing launch vehicle capability than we've seen historically. So those are some of the, the events of the year that I think are important for uh, from the commercial and civil uh, frame of reference and then I think have implications for space security and uh, I'm uh, uh, very pleased to have uh, had the opportunity to be here. Thank you, Victoria, and uh, I look forward to your questions. Next up will be Audrey. Maybe if you would maybe go out there and observe Sir Richard Branson, if you like him. <laughs> it just screams law. It really does, doesn't it? Uh, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, I'm Audrey Schaefer. I'm from the U.S. Department of Defense. And thanks, Victoria, for uh, inviting me here today. And thank you to the entire Space Security Index team for asking me to speak. It's actually a real pleasure for me to speak here today because... Um, for like the last seven years, I've actually followed the Space Security Events Project. And I've been in your seats at prior events like this, so it's sort of neat for me to be up here today. Um, so I was asked to talk about significant national security events in 2011 and then the early parts of 2012 that could have an impact on space security. And admittedly, my perspective is a bit sort of US and DOD um, centric. But even with that bias, I mean, I canvassed like my office and there were like 100 things that I could talk to you about today. So, uh, but I only have 15 minutes. 
And so I wanted to really scope it down by looking at how the Space Security Index defines space security, which SATAR actually did a really nice job of laying out earlier. Um, and I'll just repeat the definition. The secure and sustainable access to and use of space and freedom from space-based threats. So with that definition in mind, I, I'm going to focus really in two different areas. Um, first, I'm going to talk about primarily uh, DOD developments in space situational awareness, which, as Caesar laid out, uh, not only in, can enable spaceflight safety, but also you know, shared awareness of what's going on in space can help minimize the chances for mishaps, misperceptions, and mistrust. Then I'm going to talk about some of the international activities um, related to promoting the responsible, peaceful, and safe use of space. CESAR called these sort of um, the development of a normative framework. And while this isn't purely a national security issue, I do think that these um, different developments in this arena do have a real potential to kind of create a common understanding of what it means to operate responsibly and safe, uh, safely in space, um, which in the long run could not only dissuade irresponsible or potentially destabilizing activities, but have a, have a benefit to not only space security, but frankly to US national security as well. So just to set the stage before I dive into those two areas, I want to take you back to early 2011, where I thought the U.S. actually started the year on a high note by releasing the National Security Space Strategy, which was co-signed by the Secretary of Defense and the Director of National Intelligence. So not only does that strategy implement the National Space Policy, which was released um, the prior year, but it also describes how DOD will maintain the strategic advantages that we derive from an environment that is increasingly congested, contested, and competitive. Those infamous three C's that I'm sure if you looked really closely, you'd find tattooed to my forehead. <laughs> um, so, CESAR actually gave us a nice overview of the objectives, so I'll spare you those and just tell you about the five pillars that the strategy um, describes as to how we're going to maintain those advantages and achieve our objectives. The first is promoting the responsible, peaceful, and safe use of space. The second is improving U.S. capabilities and systems. The third is partnering with other nations, commercial firms, and international organizations. The fourth is deterring and defeating attacks directed at the United States and our allies. And finally, preparing to operate in a denied or degraded space environment. This kind of overall strategy, by the way, was reinforced earlier this year in 2012 with the release of the new Defense Strategic, uh, defense strategic Guidance, which was released by the Secretary of Defense, but also endorsed by the President. And among other things, that guidance directs us to work with allies and partners to enhance the resiliency and effectiveness of critical space capabilities while promoting international norms of responsible behavior. So you can kind of see the thread through, even to today. So with that strategy in place, um, most of our effort over the past 18 months or so has really been focused on implementation. So what I'm going to talk about are not only are events that not only implement the strategy, but then, like I said, track back to that definition of space security. So first, SSA, Space Situational Awareness. Um, the National Security Space Strategy says, quote, Shared awareness of spaceflight activity must improve in order to foster global spaceflight safety and help prevent mishaps, misperceptions, and mistrust. So much of our activity over the past year has really been focused on improving what I call shared awareness in support of those objectives. Um, first, the U.S. has signed what we're calling um, SSA Statements of Principles with Australia, Canada, and France, with both the Canadian and the French agreements being signed in 2011. So I think these statements are really just, um, they, they really demonstrate our intent to cooperate and develop long-term partnerships in SSA. So we're now in the process of building on those statements in concrete areas. And actually Bill uh, highlighted the partnership that the Department of Defense and the Canadian National Department of Defense 
um, the, the Memorandum of Understanding that was signed um, just a few months ago to develop our long-term partnership in SSA. Um, as part of the agreement, the data from Canada's Sapphire satellite, which like you said is scheduled for launch later this year, will contribute to the U.S. Space Surveillance Network, which will enhance the ability of both countries to detect, track, and attribute events in space. So also in 2011, uh, U.S. STRATCOM continued to offer basic, advanced, and emergency SSA services, uh, with the advanced services being available to those with agreements with the U.S. government, and agreements are available to both commercial and government spacecraft and launch vehicle operators. Um, through those services, STRATCOM shares not only the tune-aligned element sets on spacetrack.org, but also the advanced conjunction assessment products that help provide operators with the information that they uh, can use to help avoid potential collisions. Since September of 2010, STRATCOM has had the authority to negotiate and sign commercial agreements, and as of just a few weeks ago, they have 32 in place. And in late 2011, they received the authority to sign agreements with other governments, and they're in the process of establishing those. So just thinking about those SSA developments over the past 18 months or so, and then looking forward to the coming years, I think this is actually going to be a really interesting area to watch. I mean, I think you'll see all around the world more and more nations recognizing the importance of SSA for enabling all sorts of space activities, and I think it'll be really interesting to see what new systems, SSA systems, come online, not just national systems, but maybe even commercial SSA systems, and how information from those systems may or may not be shared with other partners. And while I didn't talk about the Space Data Association, which Cesar mentioned earlier, I think that'll also be something interesting to watch. So now I'm going to turn to the developments in promoting the responsible, peaceful, and safe use of space. Cesar actually went through a lot of these earlier, so I'll just try and provide some more detail on each of them. Um, again, there are plenty of quotes that you can find in the U.S. National Space Policy, Chairman's Military Strategy, National Security Space Strategy, etc., that all really reinforce this theme, so I'm not going to run through any of those. So, let's see. The U.S. government, I, I would say, also started 2012 on a high note with a statement from Secretary of State Hillary Clinton announcing our decision to, quote, join with the European Union and other nations to develop an international code of conduct for outer space activities. Um, I think this announcement was really important because it formally demonstrated the U.S.'s commitment to working with the EU and other nations in developing a code of conduct. Um, in the months that followed, the what I call, I guess, the multilateral process to negotiate the code really started to get underway. Um, in June of 2012, the European Union hosted what they called a multilateral kickoff meeting, which was open to all UN member states, uh, to do what, what they said was to initiate a multilateral diplomatic process to develop the international code. The EU reported that over 100 people attended the meeting from over 40 countries, and the EU said that at the meeting they introduced a revised draft of the code based on the comments that they had received previously in bilateral engagements with various partners. Following that June meeting, as Cesar mentioned, the EU then announced it would host its next multilateral meeting in New York, and that would be open to all member states later this year. They said that their intent is to begin substantive negotiations of the text of the code at that meeting, with negotiations potentially continuing into future multilateral meetings with a view to adopt the code in 2012. So now if we think about that like and look towards the future, uh, clearly not only this October meeting but other multilateral meetings and additional outreach that the EU plans to do about its code initiative I think will definitely be worth watching in the coming years. And then sort of to wrap up, I wanted to highlight um, two other processes which Cesar mentioned that are also considering the subject of responsible behavior, but from a slightly different perspective. 
um, while I would call the code kind of a top-down political process, there are two other forums that are sort of more bottoms-up, expert-driven processes that are looking at similar issues. Um, first, the Scientific and Technical Subcommittee of UN COPUS has a working group examining the long-term sustainability of outer space activities. Um, as Cesar mentioned, the objective of the working group is to, number one, identify areas of concern related to long-term sustainability, and examine and propose measures or best practice guidelines that could enhance sustainability for the benefit of all countries. One of the expert groups, which is expert group B, uh, I wanted to highlight because it's considering best practice guidelines related to orbital debris, space operations, and tools for collaborative space situational awareness, all themes that you'll see in the SSI report. So in my personal opinion, um, the best practice guidelines that could be developed by this group We'll have a lot of potential not only to enhance spaceflight safety, but also preserve our ability to operate in the space domain in the long term. Um, I say that because I think, I mean, if you look at the history of COPUS and the last time they embarked on a sort of a, a process to develop best practice guidelines, the result was the COPUS orbital debris mitigation guidelines. And while the parallels isn't exact and the model that they're using to develop these isn't exactly the same, um, I think that the outcome will be something similar. Um, guidelines that operators can look to for safe and sustainable space operations. Um, I bring this group up because 2011 was actually a very significant year for them. Um, in June, their terms of reference was adopted formally, which I know sounds like sort of like a bureaucratic thing, but it was really actually very significant because it meant that substantive work from the, for the group could really get underway. Um, there were informal meetings that followed after that, and then some formal meetings in early 2012 where I think at least so far, the groups are showing real progress, and it really does bear watching over the next two or three years as the work progresses. And so the last initiative I'll highlight, which Cesar also mentioned, the Group of Governmental Experts, the GGE, on Space Transparency and Confidence Building Measures, TCBMs. So the GGE on Space TCBMs. My husband, by the way, made me repeat that acronym twice when I practiced last night, so that's why I wanted to make sure you all had it. Um, so this group was established by UN General Assembly Resolution, which, like Cesar said, was adopted in 2010, so it's not really part of this year's SSI. But the U.S. really does believe that the GGE could serve as a constructive mechanism to examine voluntary and pragmatic TCBMs that could it reduce the risks, uh, potentially mitigate the risks of an increasingly contested and congested domain, enhance stability and security, and promote responsible operations in space. So. There's not really a whole lot of 2011 developments to point to. In fact, the sexiest one I could come up with was that the UN Secretariat selected the 15 UN member states that will be participating in the GGE because there's budgetary and other constraints that only allow 15 countries to participate. And I think most of the countries that were nominated at this point have selected their national experts. But irrespective of what happened in 2011, I bring this to your attention because it also bears watching in 2012 and then 2013. The group, in fact, is going to have its first meeting next week in New York, and then it'll have two follow-on meetings um, next year in April and July. So stay tuned. So I'll just wrap up now and um, summarize things I've already said, but the areas that I think bear watching this year and in the, in the following years. First, it'll be really interesting, I think, to watch SSA capabilities worldwide. Which nations develop capabilities? Are there any commercial companies that field SSA systems? And how much is that information shared with other partners? And then second, like I said, in this area of promoting responsible behavior, I think it'll be really fascinating to watch these three um, separate but clearly related international um, mechanisms that are going on right now. Um, and while I can't predict what's going to happen, 
with any of these groups, or whether any of them, frankly, will be successful, I just don't know. But it'll be really interesting to watch. So anyway, thank you very much again for the opportunity to speak, and I look forward to the questions later. Speaking of, I think everybody knows of is the URS satellite, which which was launched by the United States, Rosat, which was a collaborative effort between Germany, the United States, and the United Kingdom, and Phobos Grunt, which was a failed Russian probe that didn't get didn't get on orbit and did come back to Earth in January 15, 2012. Now we're thank thankfully we can say nothing fell on the surface, nobody was hurt, and we didn't have to use the liability convention. So. So even saying that, I can look at all three of these and do actually say three significant things about how outer space security was promoted during this time. First, during during the U.S. incident, before that actually before it actually re-entered, one of the orbital debris scientists at NASA in an interview with Space.com basically said when, when somebody asked him about who, what as far as any components that might be recovered, who those belong to, he basically came up and said those belong to NASA, i.e. the United States government. 
Now, in legal speak, that, that, that just stood out to me saying, oh, that's an expert saying to accepting liability for any damage, which is a huge, which is, which is a really a huge step when you look back at Skylab, when Skylab came down and parts fell in Australia, NASA did come look around, but basically it was like, oh, that's nice, and really didn't, as far as I know, really never even admitted that the parts belonged to, uh, those debris belonged to the United States. With ROSAT, an official with DLR came right out and said, when addressing the liability issue for any damage, all the countries involved are responsible. So basically he implicated both Germany, the United States, and the United Kingdom. Now, if, actually, if any of those, any of that debris actually landed and caused damage, I'm sure there would have been some discussion between those three about how liability would be apportioned or whether or not they were liable or not. But uh, the fact is that an official did come out and say, we, these people will be liable, we will be responsible. And that's a huge step up from Cold War mentality where it's keep everything close, don't admit anything. And as lawyers, we tell our clients, don't say anything. Well, you know, we, you, all have, you all have insurance of some respect. The first thing on your card is don't say anything to the opposing party. Let the lawyers deal with it. And with Phobos Grunt, well, the Russian, the Russian Federation, there was a lot of vacillating back and forth about the pieces landing. And I, while there wasn't really anything significant as far as liability convention, there was an SSA agreement mentioned by Cesar. For the first time, Cold War adversaries shared information. All the orbital elements data that was supplied to the, to the, to the Russian Federation that they reported on almost on a daily basis, well, most of that was provided by the Joint Space Operations Center, which is a subset of U.S. STRATCOM. Again, unheard of during Cold War era days where you have two adversaries who wouldn't say anything about anything to each other. So even though these were potentially hazardous events, some good come out of them and that we've seen that mentalities have moved forward. Potential in-orbit collisions 2011. And I have a photo of the International Space Station up there because as discussed before, that's been a big target in 2011. Uh, any or under the liability convention, there are two scenarios for debris damage, one being on the debris landing on the surface of the Earth or collisions in orbit. Just a sampling taken from NASA's orbital debris quarterly of some of the potential collisions and some of the avoidance maneuvers that had to take place. It was uh, it, got, it got pretty dicey up there, and uh, we were uh, it was almost on a, every month we were seeing a new update where the uh, space station had to perform an avoidance maneuver. I will note one on the 28th of excuse me on, on the 11th of July 2011. There was a fragment from Cosmos 375, which was actually debris from a Soviet area ASAT test some 40 years ago that was picked up. And by the time they finally realized it, it was too late to avoid it. The astronauts, had to go, the astronauts had to go into their capsule, capsule uh, but fortunately there was no collision. The question is, what, have, what are the legal consequences of what happens when we, when we have a collision in orbit? Well, the jury's still out on that because we really haven't had one that's been addressed. We did have an opportunity in 2009 when Cosmos 2251 and Iridium-33 collided in orbit. However, there was just a total lack of space situational awareness data, so you really couldn't understand, really couldn't tell who was at fault. That, when the, that when there was a lot of political finger pointing afterwards, saying it was one side's fault or it was the other side's fault. You should have known this. You should have known that. And it just got everything got all mired in 
and the politics and the miscommunication, so there really wasn't, nobody could come down and definitively say who was responsible. And it kind of highlights, and it kind of highlights a problem with, um, with the liability convention in general. We had one, we had one incident, in, with the Canadian incident back in 1979, where we actually had to test the liability convention for an object falling to Earth. We've never been able to test the fault liability standard because, well, again, because of the lack of information in this one. So we really don't know what that fault liability standard implies. It hasn't been determined yet. Is it, is it similar to a maritime law type of fault standard, or is it another type of fault standard? The liability convention really doesn't specify that, and uh, that's, one of the, that's one of the problems that we're really dealing with as far as potential orbital collisions. And again, the question is, where would liability lie if a collision occurs between the IS and a piece of space, space debris? I mean, with the way, way we space situational awareness we have now, we can tell where a fragment came from and basically pin it on, on a particular nation or launching state. But still, the idea is, who is responsible? How is fault apportioned? We don't know yet because we haven't had a situation where we've, been, where we've had two countries come together and try and resolve this. The next part is, we, we talked about disputes, well, I'm talking about dispute resolution. 2011's, particularly on December 6th, was a huge day, in my opinion, for advancing outer space security. The Permanent Court of Arbitration adopted its optional rules for arbitration of disputes relating to outer space activities. This is a significant event in that, we, for the first time, we have a mechanism that is dedicated completely to outer space incidents, and it's not just regulated government players. It's also designed to help commercial players uh, work out their differences without having to go to the International Court of Justice or reply or basically rely on diplomatic options at the UN or through their embassies at large. It's a huge potential tool uh, that could really be a game changer in how we, how we actually resolve our differences in outer space. Uh, there's potential for its use to clarify the existing space law treaties. I mentioned the liability convention. We, not, we, we don't really know what that fault, can, that fault standard is like. This is a potential tool where the parties can get together and hammer out, this is what the fault standard means, and in the, so in the future, when an incident happens, we can actually apply it with confidence. We've, a lot of talk has been made about the code of conduct, and one of the, one of the criticisms that I've heard a level of the code of conduct by some is that there's no dispute mechanism. Uh, no dispute resolution mechanism. Again, this is a potential uh, dispute resolution mechanism that could be grafted or referenced in a, a code of conduct or some other some other document that, that spins off from it to actually say now we have a forum, an impartial, not political forum, where we can get in and resolve a dispute relating to the code of conduct. And again, with the uh, with the United States effort to use TCBMs to address outer space issues. This could be used as a, another method of resolving disputes under those measures without having to resort to uh, UN bodies, to just one-on-one -on -one diplomatic encounters, or other types of uh, political remedies. December 6th was obviously a very big day uh, in 2011 because on the same day that the Permanent Court adopted the arbitration rules, Austria, the Austrian Parliament passed its Austrian Space Act. Big, it's big, this is a huge, huge step. Austria has always been a huge player in the international arena as far as space law goes. The, uh, 
COPUS headquarters is in Vienna, and they've always been they've always been really at the forefront. They've basically set up a law which allows them to become a launching state, i.e., we can operate stat a state that will operate satellites or spacecraft domestically. Uh, it's very well written out. It's very well written out, very well thought out, and it basically embodies and reinforces international space law with regards to its adherence to the Liability Convention, the Outer Space Treaty, the Rescue Convention, and the others. And it also mandates the otherwise <clears throat> voluntary uh, UN Space Three mitigation guidelines. In other words, any actors within that are operating under Austrian jurisdiction will be required to apply those basic debris mitigation standards to any objects they launch. So again, new players from people from, from countries that we otherwise wouldn't think of as being players, uh, and they are actually taking the, the first steps into really putting themselves out with the rest of us. Looking forward to 2012 to 2013, the big one on, on, the, on the list is commercial space. Uh, this is it's a game changer. Not all, as discussed, it's a huge game changer, and in the legal, it's causing a lot of legal headaches. And the lawyers are definitely scratch, we're scratching our heads a little bit, figuring out how we're going to do this. Right now, the purview of commercial space is mainly right now in the United States. We're going to we're going to be the flagship for this in terms of how the rules are set up. Everybody, everybody's heard of the successful space mission to the ISS, and that. That success has only really fueled further support for, for these initiatives, and it's only going to mean more participation by other actors. Suborbital will soon be taking the stage. Virgin Galactic has received its license from the FAA for its first powered test of Spaceship 2 later on this year. And as those flights get going in the United States, again, the issues of what how are these how are these entities actually regulated, and how what, what happens if an accident happens are going to come to a forefront. And again, my, my, my bullet point is what kind of regulatory environment will evolve as commercial space matures. As it is right now, I, I love commercial regulation and space traffic management kind of together because I think they really dovetail each other. The United States, back in 2004, passed the Commercial Space Launch Amendments Act, which basically imposes a moratorium on the FAA for further regulating commercial space in terms of suborbitals, in terms of SpaceX, beyond what, it, what they're already mandated to do under law as far as vehicle safety and approving them for flight. Many U.S., in terms of suborbital, many U.S. states have also enacted limited liability or no liability provisions within their states to attract operators like Virgin Galactic to their state to give them an umbrella. And this is, you know, a lot of people make, you know, uh, people who understand the commercial airline industry probably recognize that airlines started off this way. They were under the Warsaw Convention, they were essentially given a limit on the board, basically immune from any liability to help the, basically help things get started. And as it grew, the regulations around airlines matured. And I think as, and as I note, as li liability and responsibility to these operators will grow as the industry grows and matures and becomes more self-sustainable. But that doesn't really mean things are going to go hog wild overnight with regulations. It's going to be a growth process as it actually grows. And just notably, back, back about a month ago, NASA and the FAA signed an MOU to look at each other's regulations regarding spaceflight to make sure they're not open, that their regulations don't overlap each other. Again, this isn't a matter of creating new regulations, it's looking at their existing regulations to make sure that they're not creating unnecessarily constraints 
to commercial space activities that would otherwise hobble or kill the industry outright before it has a chance to mature. But like I mentioned before, as commercial space matures, the issues are going to start growing too. And here's, here's a few of my, my favorites, I think. Does the current body of space law address commercial space? And I talk about commercial space in the suborbital context and in the orbital context with SpaceX. It does and it doesn't. There are, I mean, so you, can, you can say by interpreting, like say for the Outer Space Treaty or Lake Lake Convention, yes, under those precepts we can stretch that to cover these activities. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to encompass every possible scenario that develops from this. Is a new regulatory body or treaty or international treaty need to manage commercial space activities or custom, will customary law and practices fill the gap? This has been a kind of an issue because there's really two sides to it. Some people see a need for, to expand the current body of space law to address commercial space in the form of a treaty. But they're really, I would dare say, talking to some people that I've spoken with, there really isn't a lot of broad-based support for a new tree, nor is there a political will for a new tree on commercial space at the moment. So it's one of those, it, it's, and it, again, it's back to not killing the industry before it has a chance to really get up on its own and mature. Uh, I say customary law and practices because I think a lot of what, what a lot of what's going to fill the current, the current gaps in international space law is customary law. Actually getting up there and doing it and creating practices through the actual activities, that will fill in, may end up filling in some of the gaps. One that's down the road a little bit once commercial space starts doing carrying passengers, what's the status of passengers flying into space on commercial vehicles? Are they entitled to the same protections under international law, such as the rescue agreement? Technically, under international law, are these passengers considered astronauts? And they, are they really entitled to the same protections and privileges that astronauts would be under, say, the rescue agreement, for example. These are some of the questions that lawyers are going to have to grapple with and, and, and in a sense, address, or perhaps even let customary law fill in, to, fill in as things progress. And kind of a new one that when you're dealing with a private entity, or in the case of SpaceX, which is in its essence a third, uh, an independent contractor for NASA, what happens if a third-party actor commits an intentional tort or a criminal act during his space activities? Who's responsible? The liability convention would say the United States is responsible. However, there's a, there, there is an argument saying, why shouldn't the actor, that independent contractor themselves, be liable in a court of law or in some other international legal form? And again, these are things uh, that, again, lawyers are going to have to wrestle with and deal with as the issues come up. And again, uh, whose jurisdiction will it fall under? Again, we can go back to the Outer Space Treaty under its jurisdictional requirements and argue that as well. But I think, with, I think the whole venue and the whole brand new nature of commercial space is going to dictate maybe filling in some gaps that aren't covered by the current body. And space debris. It's the 800-pound gorilla in the room. It's been talked about by all members of the panel. And I talk about it again just because it is really important. But I'm going to talk about it in the context of remediation on cleaning it up. We hear a lot of, I've read a lot of articles about engineering and, all, and different techniques for doing it. But there, the problem is there are some serious legal questions that have to be answered before we can start doing that. Some of the legal issues that come to mind. For one, there's no, there is no legal precedent for a nation removing a satellite or another space object from outer space. It hasn't happened yet. Uh, it might happen with, I think you've all heard of the Swiss government with uh, Clean Space One. 
a project they have three, three years down the road where they're going to remove one of their own satellites, it may actually be the Sputnik of space, re space debris removal. If they go up there, they perform the debris removal, and without, if, if no other country objects, in a sense, they could have set a de facto customary law that a nation can go up and remove its own space debris without objection of another nation. One of the huge issues comes from the current body space law, which is Article 8 of the Outer Space Treaty. Article 8 basically says that any object launched into space belongs to that nation and continues to belong to that nation. Unlike maritime law, there's no right of salvage, which actually dovetails with the unwritten customary rule of maritime law that federal warships, that a country continues to obtain ownership rights over a federal warship, and they cannot be salvaged unless that country expressly abandons them. And that leads to another question of what 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 act constitutes express abandonment? Is it basically a document saying we abandon all rights and privileges to this? You can do it as you will. Is it a legal document, or is it prop or is it an indirect action? We don't know yet, and that's one of the issues that lawyers are going to have to hammer out in the next few years as technology comes online and as policy catches up to perform this type of uh, debris removal. And ITAR, which is always a huge thing in the United States, and there could be export issues, especially if foreign, if foreign governments or non-governmental organization from a foreign country is involved in there in the activity. ITAR, as it is written now, the debt will, will certainly be triggered in one form or another, and that could cause some, cause some uh, jumping through hoops for lawyers in particular to iron out those issues so that those NGOs can actually participate. And of course, their intellectual property rights. Some of those satellites, even though they're launched under the auspices of a government, are privately owned. And they, have some, and they both have intellectual property rights in terms of patents on the, the actual hardware and the actual software on board. Before another entity can go and actually go and try and either salvage it or deorbit it, there may be some issues about whether or not they can actually interact, whether they're going to actually violate that company's, that owner's intellectual property rights. So that's kind of a few of the things, and sometimes we're, you know, sometimes we're very, uh, I'm going to say lawyers can create more problems than they solve. Well, I'm listing a few problems that, we're trying, that I'd like to see solved. And again, liability, which, is always a, which always comes up in legal discussion, is a huge issue, because the actions themselves are going to be inherently dangerous and risky, and actually risk the possibility of creating more space debris. The question is, who's going to be responsible, and who's going to cover them? Uh, I can see, I can actually see insurance premiums for something like this being quite substantial. So if that's the case, if a private operator is going to do this, are they going to be subsidized by their sponsored government, or are they going to have to foot the bill themselves? Again, issues that will have to be hammered out both at the business level and the legal level and the government level. Still to be defined and relevant to space debris removal is the term space. Ever since the Eisenhower administration, the dawn of the space age, we haven't really come down and agreed where space begins, at what point. It's always been innocuous. It'll probably continue to be so because of the national security implications of defining a fixed point, fixed altitude for outer space. Uh, but it is an issue that hangs out there, I feel, for space debris removal. And while we're at it, how about we define space debris? I, uh, I listen to media with, with, with humor. I was talking about an asteroid or a meteor. They, they re reference it as space debris. It's become very synonymous with, with, with Google, with saying we're going to Google it, or with Xerox for photocopy. I think we, before we can actually start harvesting or 
remediating space debris. We need to define what it is. The question is, how are we going to define it? Are we going to define it from a liability standpoint about who's responsible for damage that it caused? Or are we going to define it from a remediation standpoint that's going to actually allow us to describe this, describe this object so that we can uh, get the authority to actually get it out of orbit and increase space security? Uh, as noted, it's unlikely that any of these issues will be addressed substantially in 2012. However, I think with once the code of conduct gets going, the negotiations uh, get going, and if we come to an agreement, I think we'll start seeing things moving along a little bit, since the code of conduct is very heavy on space debris. Uh, so we look forward to probably the 2013 era when, when we, we might see something actually signed for the code of conduct, where some of these will actually start making some progress on maybe definitions and some of the other issues. But in the meantime, all this stuff, that all these issues are gelling in the background and lawyers are considering them and how to solve them to the satisfaction of nations in general. Yeah, I'm just going to, just one little quick thing I thought I'd share. Whoops. How do I go back here? But any, uh, is there a way to go back? Or? Okay, but anyways, <laughs> I guess bottom line is, my computer. probably a good thing too, but bottom line is, yes, Lawyers are, that we, we definitely speak of lawyers as being the bane of society, and Shakespeare kind of recognized that in his, in, in his play, but I, I, I encourage you, let's not kill the lawyers yet, because we have a lot of work to do, and in order to get speak, in order to address these issues, uh, you're going to need them. Thank you. You guys could just turn your mics on. The top thing. Okay. You guys can turn on your mics, please. Okay, we have a few minutes left for QA. Um, do we have a microphone for the QA? No? All right. Please project. Um, this is being recorded, so we need to make sure you speak loud enough so that we, the microphone can actually pick it up. So, any questions for our panel? Yes. Oh, and could you please identify yourself? Uh, Not that we don't know who you are. I have a question for Audrey and Michael, and it has to do with the reentry of Phobos Front, and you portrayed that as sort of a successful example of where the countries are working together and all that, but actually there were Russian officials who were accusing the United States of having interfered with Phobos Front. So I'm curious from both of your perspectives whether you see that as successful, or was that something where it was kind of dicey between our two countries? Did, did, did things work out, or could they have been done better? Well, I kind of, I, I kind of take, I, I still take it as a success, just for the simple fact that we did, we were sharing, we were sharing information with them, so that they could project it to the public and give an, give an idea of what was actually happening. I, I, I'm familiar with all the accusations, and there was a lot of eye rolling on my part reading, reading those, and I guess, and I really just, you know, put that up to parts of the Cold War mentality that haven't thought yet. Uh, there was a lot of animosity for over 40 years towards, towards each other. And those, those attitudes don't change overnight. So I just chalk it up as to this, this is something that's going to have to fall over time. But considering what we got out of it as far as cooperation, sharing that type of information that would otherwise not have been shared, um, I consider it a success, yes. So I'll just, I, I mean, I, I agree with Michael. I mean, I, I think you have to take some of the media reports with a grain of salt. I mean, I think there was good cooperation not only 
with the Russians, but also with other partners in sharing SSA in order to get the best observations available on the object as it was re-entering. So I do think um, just in terms of exercising sort of um, cooperation for events of that nature, I think it was a success. Yes? Uh, my question is with regard to the Memorandum of Understanding that was recently signed um, with Canada. I was hoping you could share some more details um, with regard to that, and specifically what are some of the first steps that will take place as you work to implement that Memorandum of Understanding? Well, I'll also ask any of my Canadian colleagues who might want to comment on this as well. Um, but, I mean, I think the memorandum of understanding is really about establishing a long-term partnership on SSA between the United States and Canada. And I guess you could say one of the first steps is the sharing of data from the Sapphire satellite that we mentioned. Um, that data, like I said, will be incorporated into the U.S. Space Surveillance Network, which will enhance both countries' ability to detect and attribute events in space. Any follow-up? No, I have nothing to say. That's an excellent response. Thanks, Bill. <laughs> if I could just clarify, um, you also mentioned um, an agreement, agreements, you know, involving three countries and three nations, including Australia and France. And I'm hoping you, you could um, just kind of, in layman's terms, what does it symbolize that, the, that there is an agreement signed and what does it mean? Yeah, so I'll, I'll say a little bit more on those agreements. Uh, there are actually three separate bilateral agreements that the U.S. has, one with Canada, one with France, and one with Australia. Uh, but they all are very similar in kind of their intention and, and in fact, in what they look like. Um, they're really, we call them SSA statements of principles because that's what they are. They, they are a, um, an articulation of our intent to cooperate in the area of space situational awareness. And so, for example, the cooperation, the memorandum of understanding with Canada is an example where, you know, sort of building upon that foundation of that statement of principles, we're now looking at cooperation in concrete areas. And we're also exploring concrete partnerships with the other countries as well. Well, I actually would like to ask a follow-up to the panel about that. I mean, both Chris and um, Audrey talked about the increasing I guess, um, proliferation, for lack of a better word, of SSA capabilities internationally. And one of those things that always, always struck me about that, it's good to have that information, if only for peace of mind for other countries, but it's really not helpful to the United States unless that information is being shared. As I understand it, there are two things that are going to be limiting that. One, confidence in the data itself, and two, just a, the sheer capability of incorporating that data. So I'd be curious to know what the panel thinks about what do we need to do to get to that point where we can be, not freely sharing, but at least have it, so there's not so many obstacles in the way of doing that. I, I mean, I'll, I'll just start by saying, you know, I mean, the U.S. shares more SSA information, really, than any other country. And so, um, you know, we have actually improved significantly, I think, in the last couple of years in terms of the quality of information that we've shared. We've gone from just sharing the two-line element sets over spacetrack.org to also sharing the more advanced conjunction um, summary message products that are shared, you know, when the, the operator has an agreement with the U.S. government. So, I mean, I think we've actually come a long way in the past couple of years. So, I think from my perspective, just from a U.S. perspective, it'll be really interesting to see how other countries overcome whatever sort of internal process issues that they may have to share some of the information that they have um, more widely publicly or with other countries. 
and I guess I would clarify that and, and just add on to that. And again, I'm not going to speak for the U.S. government because obviously they can speak for themselves. But there are, you know, there's always going to be national security issues, and that's always going to be weighed with SSA. You know, how much SSA capability you're going to share with some with with, you know, somebody who could be a potential adversary down the road. I mean, I mean, my my knowledge of the subject is that even though we are sharing SSA, there are political there are political thoughts that we shouldn't be sharing as much as we have so far. And I think that's always going to be an, uh, a factor in any future sharing agreements. Just actually a, a follow-up question to Audrey. I mean, so there's Australia, France, and Canada. Is it reasonable to expect at this point that similar agreements are going to be unveiled in, in, in the coming years with other countries? I mean, I, I can't really speak to what future agreements we might right. have. We're, we're only one half of the party that signs the right. agreement, so I, I really don't know. But, I mean, uh, the STRATCOM process for establishing agreements to share um, sort of that operational level of SSA, I mean, we are, like I said, they just a, sort of about six months ago or so received the authority to sign those agreements with other governments, and so we're in the process of working through that. Um, and so, I mean, even if you don't see those grand agreements necessarily, you will probably see in the coming months uh, some more operational uh, cooperation between the U.S. and other countries. Other questions? I'd like to ask Carissa more about the study that you mentioned about demand for suborbital launches. And you were saying that you think there really is a significant demand at that price point. Is there enough of a demand to support all of the companies that are building these suborbital systems, or do you expect to shake out? Uh, that's a great question, Marcia, uh, which I can't answer because the study hasn't been released yet. Uh, we're probably two or three weeks away uh, uh, from release. It's a study for uh, uh, FAA and Space Florida, and so at that point we'll, we'll roll out the findings. Uh, but just as a, a brief preview, our focus uh, was on the, the level of demand and to try to assess that uh, as opposed to an analysis of the business cases of the companies. comes to potential efforts to establish a code of conduct, what's the very latest in the United States is, um, you know, in that effort overall? I mean, I think, I mean, the the announcement that I mentioned in, 20, in early 2012 of Secretary Clinton announcing the U.S.'s intent to cooperate with the EU and other countries to develop a code of conduct, I mean, that's kind of the latest sort of formal position um, from the United States. Uh, the United States did participate in the multilateral meeting that I mentioned in June, and we continue to engage with the EU um, and, frankly, a whole host of other countries in um, working towards an international code of conduct. Um, I do have a question. Oh, sorry. Yes. Hi, Jeff Phelps. Um, or any of the panelists who want to put, put a uh, prediction out there, what do you see? What's your prediction on? if and when we will see an international code of conduct come out of these negotiations. So I don't have a crystal ball, so I can't, I mean, I really can't make a prediction. I mean, like I said, the EU has announced that they would like to see a code of conduct adopted in 2013. But, I mean, like I just said, you know, they're just one of however many countries, um, well, they're not even a country, but they're just one of however many entities are going to be participating in this process. So, I mean, I don't know. It, I, like I said, I think this October meeting will be very interesting to watch. I mean, each meeting uh, where these countries get together, I think, will tell you a little bit more about what the future can hold. If I may jump in, uh, Jeff, one of the other things that's going to affect how quickly this happens is that the European Union is trying to back away from the Code of Conduct in terms of it being their product 
It's now, um, they have the United Nations Institute for Disarmament Research. You know, DEER has been tasked with holding a lot of the meetings and having papers and just kind of shepherding through the process. So depending on how well UNIDIR can do their work, and they've got some great people there, and I'm not biased at all because they're former colleagues of mine, but um, <laughs> they have some really good people there that I think should be able to get a lot of stuff done. But you know, a lot depends on the international environment. And frankly, the code of conduct has been harmed by um, its presentation. It has not been seen by many countries as being open to other interests. Um, whether or not that's true in reality, um, that's still the perception, particularly for some emerging space powers that are trying to get a foothold in the international community. So that's uh, definitely a, a cross for them to bear. Well, I, well, I just just to do a quick follow up. I mean, um, I just don't want anyone to get the impression that the EU is really walking away from the code uh, of conduct. And I and I'm not trying to speak on their behalf. But one of the things that I didn't mention in my speech, um, there was a the EU Council decision in May that actually led to the work that. Victoria mentioned by Unidir, where the EU committed to continue um, outreach uh, on their code of conduct initiative to hold <coughs> these multilateral meetings that I mentioned and also to convene um, non-governmental entities or uh, comments on the code of conduct itself. So, I mean, they are very much, I think, working hand-in-hand -hand with Unidir as um, this process moves forward. And I think one of the perceptions I've had, having written on this a little bit, is that uh, we're looking at countries like India and such, because, India and Brazil, because my understanding is they really were burnt badly by the first effort and really didn't feel their concerns were being addressed. The United States has, been has kind of been shepherding them on this, this effort and kind of supporting their views and putting them out there so that they will be. So really to the extent that the United States supports it and actually signs on to it, I think we might, and to the extent that India and Brazil and these other countries that their concerns are addressed, I think that'll play a significant factor in it as well. well uh, a couple of comments I will make regarding the code of conduct. I mean, first of all, and I hinted at this uh, when, when I spoke earlier, I mean, the notion that it's now framed as an international code of conduct rather than the European Union code of conduct, I mean, it shouldn't, it really shouldn't be overstated. I mean, it was, it was, it really is a matter of semantics and, and framing, but it was never meant to be a code of conduct for the European Union. It was always meant to be a, a code of conduct for the international community and for international space actors. And, and, and this, uh, this shift now, in late 2011, early 2012, that to call it an international code of conduct is really, I mean, it emphasizes that fact that it's for the international community, but the implication is not that prior to this shift it was meant to be just for the European Union. It was always meant to be an, an international code of conduct, even if you specifically use the word international before it or not. The other question, I mean, or a way in which your question could be qualified is, when do we think it will be adopted? Adopted by whom? I mean, what is the expectation of universality? I mean, is there such a scenario where it is adopted by some and not others? Is there a critical mass of countries uh, uh, that could potentially adopt it or, or not? I think most people would agree that, that, that Support of the, the the U.S. support is is highly consequential for the future uh, for the future of the code. But but uh, could you have the support of the U.S. and the European Union and say China but not India or India but not China and still consider it to be adopted? Uh, I mean, it's hard to tell. Uh, question. Yes. A question for Mike. Uh, my, my name is Paul Guthrie. There was a, and the question is a little bit silly, but it's important. Sure. It was a or potentially important. Uh, one of XCOR's potential customers um, just announced 
last week or two weeks ago that he intended to make a stock trade while in space on an export. And listening to your speech, I was wondering whether when we hear these types of things, we should be concerned whether he's whether he's looking at any sort of tax implications, whether he's <laughs> Good question, and actually not a silly question in in, in uh, regards. The only, only the best way I can address it is the sky's the limit. We are, we're really we're entering uncharted territory here. There are no I, I mean no specific in, no specific activities come to mind. Well, one one perspective is you know people start going in and interfering with other people's uh, other nations' satellites, which is which is a big no-no internationally. That that would be a huge huge issue, and uh, a lot of people get very upset for very good reason. I mean, I think you could actually say in some cases that might constitute piracy uh, in, in, in space. Uh, but my, I guess my rule of thumb with, with commercial space and the way things have been developing, the way things are going to develop, the sky's the limit. Uh, don't, don't be surprised about things that you hear, and don't, can, don't blow them off as being silly or asinine. Before you do, take a look and think, just stop and think, considering all this happened, and everything that, that's going to happen, is this in the realm of possibility? I'm not sure that really answers your question, but that's probably the best way I can frame it. Um, I guess I have one last question for the panel. Um, and again, this is putting on your future prognostication hat, so feel free to skip or blow this question off if you'd like. But in terms of looking at future cooperation in space, it seems that there are increasing entities and interests in space, and of course, it was mentioned earlier that China has had an interesting year. And I'd be curious to know if the panel thinks, um, I think the political environment is probably too toxic to have cooperation with China on space stuff in the next couple years or so. But maybe five or ten years. Do you, ever, do you guys ever see any kind of U.S.-China uh, cooperation in space, whether that's on the governmental level or even on the commercial level? I'll step out. No, I'll step out. Probably gonna get bit off, get my head bit off for this, but eventually, yes. I think I think as I think China in particular is looking at at commercial space, and I can't read China's mind, but commercial space has got to be at least a concern or a threat to their space program in the in the area in the in the aspect that they that their space program is used a lot for promoting themselves internationally, and, they, and it's a way of competing government to government on the worldwide stage with, with countries like the United States and Russia. Commercial space is a paradigm shifter. Here we have private entities, not governments, performing space operations on behalf of a government instead of by the government. And if they want to become, and because of that paradigm shift, they may not be able to uh, com uh, actually act the, uh, compete as effectively, and they may have to start you know, loosening up their, their, their internal policies and actually exposing what, what, you know, grant more transparency, saying this is what we got, we want to participate in this more, how can we do it? So I, I guess commercial space is, is kind of, for, for, for China in the sense, a, uh, a curse and a potential blessing down the road in that it may, it may be a, a, door, a doorstop to them in the way they pursue their space program, but also an opportunity to actually open up and participate with the Western world. 
So I, I, um, I think that this really, this really illustrates the complexity of a question like uh, what is commercial space and what are commercial space dynamics. Uh, in the U.S., the idea of a company acting on behalf of the government, we would never consider that commercial space because that's been the history of our space program mm -hmm. for the last 40 years, that contractors have, have executed the U.S.'s space program on behalf of the government. Uh, the national space policy speaks to uh, what is commercial space and it's the degree of risk and the degree of control over decision-making and so on and so forth. And, and, there's a, uh, and we as a nation are grappling with the nuances of that and, and how uh, to, to – uh, uh, act uh, for the government to act through those commercial actors and what those relationships are. Uh, I think that when you look at uh, an, uh, an entity, um, uh, look at China's space program, uh, the nuances and subtleties of what is commercial and what is government, what is military and what is civil are, are equally complex but very, very different in terms of how you would operationalize them. Uh, China certainly uh, is actively interested in commercial space as an arena, uh, certainly does, as you say, uh, build relationships with other nations through uh, selling satellites and selling launches and providing technical expertise uh, and is building capabilities there. Also, I will note that something like 6% of the world's pretty rich people live in China. And if you're selling launches uh, uh, to space tourists or uh, if you are trying to find financing for a venture, China is an obvious place to look. And so I agree that uh, the um, continued com uh, emerging complexity of uh, different types of commercial space actors will result in different relationships. Um, I, I myself, Victor, to get back to your specific question, uh, think that even within a five-year time frame, an active, overt government-to-government -government cooperation in space is very unlikely. Um, so I'll just say a few words, and I'll start actually by challenging the question. Um, <laughs> uh, but just okay. you know, well done. To, but to, to really define um, cooperation, I mean, for example, in the the recent um, Chinese manned mission, the docking mission, the U.S. offered. Um, SSA support to that um, mission, and China took us up on it. So, I mean, whether or not you call that, like, cooperation, I mean, I think it is in a, in a way. Um, the other thing I'll say is with, you know, those three international initiatives that I mentioned, I think we're going to see increasing opportunities for dialogue um, with the Chinese. And, and, I mean, frankly, we have shared interests in the space domain. We're both operating in the space domain. We're both reliant on the systems that we have in the space domain. And so we have a mutual interest in ensuring the long-term sustainability and, frankly, the stability, security, safety, et cetera, of our operations there. So there is cooperation, and Audrey's doing it. That's what we've learned. <laughs> well, and I, and I, but I, I think it all gets down to semantics. Yeah. This is where the lawyers come in. What is cooperation? Yeah. I do think space situational awareness specifically is an area of cooperation. Not, not potential cooperation, but actual cooperation. I, I think, I mean, uh, JSPOC, I mean, there's like 20 or 30 close, uh, yeah, close sure. approach mm -hmm. alerts daily. I think in the past year there's, uh, there have been more than 140 issued to China. On, on, yes, on, on close true. approaches. Mm -hmm. so, so that's, I mean, a very tangible, concrete example of cooperation. I mean, may not, I mean, uh, translate to cooperation on, on, like, commercial sector, perhaps, but, but there is cooperation. I mean, it's grounded on, on, on common interests. Okay. Uh, we're wrapping up, so really quickly. It's last. very quick. Yeah. Uh, just on those three um, initiatives you entered into, when did you enter into those? Do you have months or... 
I'm sorry. I, I was just. I was sorry. I didn't clarify. I was referring to the code of conduct, the copious long-term sustainability, and the group of governmental experts. So they're all kind of operating on different timelines. They're all various, you know, multilateral intergovernmental initiatives. If I may okay. advertise, the Secure World Foundation has some lovely fact sheets about each of those initiatives on their website. No, no, I was asking. <laughs> there you go. I was asking about the statement of principle. Ah. I thought you were talking about the statement of principles oh, with Canada, sorry. Um, Australia. And no, I, sorry. I was talking about the three multilateral ones. I don't have the exact dates. I'm sorry on the SSA statements of principles. Um, is it spring of uh, 2012? I would hate to give you the wrong information and have it be reported in States News. <laughs> <laughs> well, the one with Australia was signed in calendar year 2010, and then the ones with France and Canada were signed in calendar year 2011. Okay. Did you want to ask anything? The dates for those signatures, I think, are actually in the full security index. Yeah. Did you have a last yeah. very um, quick we, question? We think of GPS jamming as being a military issue, but there certainly are civil economic impacts. Could you talk about the framework for dealing with those kind of damage? Since GPS is, is substantially a if you're talking about GPS in general or GNSS, global navigation satellite systems, in other words, all of the systems out there. That would be something the ITU, as an international body, should be addressing. No, How, mean, can, I, can I sue Cuba for not being able to buy gas? You could try. You could, you, could, you, could, you could always sue. You could probably get a judgment, but you probably wouldn't be able to collect. That's, that's, probably, that's probably the best answer I can give you on that. You could get into space news, then. <laughs> okay. Well, with that, um, at first I'd like to thank our lovely hosts, uh, especially Bill Mackey and Faith Hood for hosting us today. Really appreciated giving us such a nice, cool environment to have this lovely discussion in. And um, please join me in thanking our panelists for what I think has been a very fascinating discussion. And uh, thank you very much, Victoria. I'd like to uh, sort of close this event to uh, an explanation of a few things that are going on here in the embassy. Uh, a great panel session. Thanks very much. Uh, an index. I took, uh, the index I'm taking away is that there's a heck of a lot of lawyer work to be done in the next five years. <laughs> so I expect chapters on the law policy. Critical order. Increase to 15 pages in the next, uh, next few years. Uh, so let's get on with it, Elorius. Uh, so uh, I want to thank Faith Hood. Faith Hood was, uh, my, is my assistant. She put on this event. And among other, we have two other events going on in the embassy today. Thank you very much, Faith. So the, uh, recently we've had a deputy head of mission um, become a space, I hate saying the word geek, but it is, she, she's become very uh, adamantly involved in the space environment. She had her down to the launch of the, the shuttle, she just loves space and space stuff now. So she asked us to form, form a uh, space working group inside the embassy and we have now, I'm the, sort of the first chairman of this space embassy group. Uh, space Working Group, and we have Industry Canada involved, Envi Environment Canada, National Defense, Defense Research, um, Trade with Aerospace and ITARF uh, experts, uh, Public Affairs, Government Affairs, and political folks who are both all supporting this space. So we've got a multidisciplinary space group. One of our first tasks for this year was to put together a, an exhibit to um, to commemorate our 50 years of uh, in space. Uh, September 29th, 1962, was the launch of Alouette-1. It was launched in Vandenberg by NASA. So this started a 50-year partnership and cooperation efforts with the United States. 
and it's it's going on strong as we as we run today. Um, uh, and so what we've done is put together a, a wall plaque and models a model exhibit downstairs in a, in our gallery to commemorate our 50 years and our major milestones over the 50 years of Canadian space involvement. So you are all invited to head downstairs to take a look at that. And meanwhile, they're going to be putting this room into a reception and we'll be having good old Canadian beer and, and BC wine, I suspect, afterwards. So you're all invited back up here as they, uh, for a reception afterwards. So please join us in the reception. And please join me with in one last uh, round of applause for our panel members and our...